Welcome to the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. Paul Wadlington, your intrepid host, joined by the great author of the Substack, known as America's War Game, Ian Boyd, also a contributor at Inside Texas, also a YouTube star. Uh, Ian, what's going on, man? Yeah, we're all uh, we're all YouTube stars now. Yeah, well, hey, it's uh, are you gonna are you having random Texas fans recognize you now and buy you beers, or are you having OU fans in airports like uh, throw their chili dog on you or anything like that? Nope, not yet. <laughs> the, nothing like that has ever happened to me up here in Michigan. I one time though, I was uh, is well, it's a little bit sad, but I was getting lunch with my buddy Charks in his uh, let's see here like the summer before he passed. Yeah. We got like uh, sandwiches at like central market or something. Cause I was in Dallas for a, a day or something. And uh, we're just chatting and some guy comes up to him and is like, Hey man, love what, love what you do at the ringer. You're really inspiring to like, just like recognized him and came up to him. I was like, does that happen? Does that happen to you a lot? And he's like, oh, sometimes. That's cool, man. What in the world? Yeah. If y'all don't know who Jonathan Jarks is, uh, he's a guy that actually wrote, for Barking Carnival for a yeah. while before he got discovered and then went on to to bigger and better things. Ended up working for The Ringer and then, as you said, um, passed away tragically well before his time. But uh, a really good guy. And if any of you have a chance, uh, his name is spelled T-J-A-R-K-S. Google some of the last things that he wrote when he realized that he had a, a bad prognosis and take some heart in reading some of those essays and like what it is to face death courageously. It's uh, it's pretty impressive stuff, in my opinion. Yeah, he was he was great. Yep, absolutely. Guy will miss, and one of the best, clearest thinking basketball writers I've ever read. So, uh, even on that smaller, selfish level, I miss him as well. Um, I miss his random texts sometimes, or I text him randomly. And you know, point out something, or he'd point out something to me, and I'd be like, "Ooh, that makes sense. I didn't know that." But uh, yeah, great guy. Uh, all right, Ian. There's a bunch of big picture stuff I want to talk to you about, or even small picture stuff. You and I, we could go macro or micro, depending on our feeling at the moment. But I want to talk a little bit about the new playoff format. So, for those of you who are not aware, college football does now have an expanded playoff. It's going to be 12 teams. For now, it's a two-year agreement, and we don't think that 12-team format's going to probably last long. They're going to they're going to expand to 16 as quickly as they can for money reasons. Uh, by the way, Ian, I don't know if you remember about 10, 15, 20 years ago, the reason you could never have playoffs was that it would be unsafe for college football players, right? Having to play 15, 16 games, 17 games potentially. That's uh, all kind of disappeared, didn't it? Yeah, I remember that. I don't. Well, I guess that was just because the Bulls had the Bulls had that much control. Yep. All time because they had like uh, there's like that book. Do you remember that book, Death to the BCS? Yes. Boy, like Dan Wetzel and I think I can't remember who else wrote it, but like uh, he just exposed how the Bulls were like just like buying off college administrators. Yeah maintain their place even though it did, really didn't make any sense for the bowl games to be as important as they were for a long time well and the craziest thing i remember from that book was the 
insane undue compensation that bowl executives made for basically doing nothing. They'd wear a, like an orange blazer and go see some college football games scouting, right? And basically, like these guys were pulling down four or five hundred grand working, I don't know, a couple of weeks a year. I don't know if you remember that, but that was a that was a nutty part of that book. Reading that, yeah, it was like akin to like one of those like uh, enormous multi million dollar nonprofits. Yes. You're like, wait, what? You're so you're the CEO of United Way, and you, you make four hundred thousand, and you have private club memberships, and like, wait, why? What? Yeah, and only forty percent of the donated money actually makes it to the charity. That's interesting, right? Uh, if, you, if any of you are charitable givers, uh, you should definitely check check out CharityNavigator.com because they tell you. They go through all the reports and actually tell you what amount, what percentage of your money actually gets to the end goal, whatever that might be. So worth checking out, just a little aside, all the little things you learn on the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. But uh, back to the new format. So we're going 5-7. That means five conference champions, um, seven at large. The five are going to be comprised of the four quote-unquote major conferences. Y'all know me by now. I think there's only two major conferences now, but whatever. We're going to we're going to endorse the fiction that there's four, uh, you know, equals, uh, and then they're going to add the highest-rated fifth conference champion from a minor conference. In other words, so Liberty, as you've observed, is now about to become. Uh, the Notre Dame of evangelicals, right? If things go right for them. Uh, I think that's the goal. I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't think it's going to happen either. Talk about that if you want, but. Well, I I think the whole point of Protestantism is that you don't have one team. (laughs) You can't all agree, right? (laughs) That's that's very true. I mean, also there's just like, like evangelicals are are not really, it's it's not gotten to the point where they're like lacking for like, mascots you know true and also uh, i'm actually a a devout evangelical and i have no problem with the longhorns as a cultural mascot you know and i I think there's like millions of us across the south that are totally fine being attached to auburn or clemson or oh there's no doubt yeah yeah there's no question um It's going to be an interesting thing, but so let's talk about that because one of the observations that you made, obviously the great deal for the ACC and the Big 12 is they're going to get seeded as a conference champion. They'll be seeded with a first round bye in the structure of this new playoff. That's a big advantage. You observed thinking about it that the five seed is actually going to be really interesting. So the only, the first four of the major conferences are getting buys. That fifth at large, I should explain, you know, whether that's Toledo or Louisiana Lafayette or whoever or Liberty, they don't they're not guaranteed a buy as a conference champion. They're just sort of getting an at large uh, guaranteed spot, right? The highest ranked of those minor conferences. But they're not guaranteed a buy. So they're going to every year or for two years, they're going to be the 12th seed, right? Almost guaranteed. Unless yeah. you have some crazy, anomalous, badass Liberty team or Toledo or somebody, right? right. Yeah. So your observation was 
it might be an advantage to be the five seed and get the buy. So let's explore that because I have, I've thought about it since you brought that up and I'm not sure you're right, but I'm not sure you're wrong. So let's talk it through. So, so just your case. Yeah. The, The problem is it's, it's the, it's the automatic qualifiers and the automatic buys that are the problem because the five seed the, the three and the four seed are just invariably going to go to the top big 12 team, the big 12 champion and the ACC champion. Right. Not even necessarily the best big 12 team or best ACC team. It's whoever wins the conference title game. Who wins the conference title game, which like was very close to being like Louisville last year. Ugh. And was, yeah. I mean, by default could have been Oklahoma state last year. Right? Sure. Now, so if you're the five seed waiting for you, so, okay, first you get the 12 seed, which as you said, is just going to end up being the fifth conference champion that gets admitted. But then in the second, and you get to play them at home. So it's not just the 12th best team. It's going to be like potentially like the 30th best team. And it's, it's, to be clear, your home, right? You get to play them at your place. They have to come travel to you. Yeah. And then, unless like you want to make some arrangement to play it in a bigger stadium or something, whatever, right? And then waiting for you in the second round is the four seed, which is invariably going to be the weaker of the Big 12 and ACC champion. Probably most years, the Big 12 champion. Yeah, unless like an odd year where like uh, Florida State or Clemson slips up in the championship and loses to Boston College or something, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, so you could go like Liberty or like a UTSA in the first round at home. And then you get like Pitt in the second round. And I saw people on Twitter. They're like, this is such garbage for Notre Dame because Notre Dame can never be a top four seed. And it's like, well, Notre Dame, if they're good, they're going to have a great shot at that. They're going to be the five. Yeah. And that's well, the way a- they look at it. And I mean, it's, it's fair. Is they they said like we're not being disenfranchised. That extra playoff game, first of all, it's favorable. It's going to be at Notre Dame in in late December. So God help you if you're Florida Atlantic as the you know the the small school qualifier. (laughs) But you have this interesting easier path. Here's the thing though. This isn't baseball. It's football. So simply when, whenever you pad up and go play a competent opponent, even an incompetent opponent, there is a percentage chance that you have a major injury to a, to a substantial starter or your quarterback, gosh, help you, right? So what is the percentage trade-off of that easier road you describe versus playing an extra game, the incremental chance of injury? Jonathan Brooks blew his knee against TCU. Quinn Ewers missed two games, right? Uh, not because he got hurt against you know the most elite team on our schedule. I mean, you can get hurt against anyone, particularly anyone with a pulse. And even a Liberty, yes, or a team like that, has a pulse. They're not just a horrendous football team, right? So how do you weigh the magnitude of a, per- a small percentage chance injury that will derail everything for you versus the kinder 
seeding. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people. So I looked up like in the NFL, how, how often the team that has to play in the wild card round makes it to the Super Bowl. And it was less often than I thought. Yeah, we've had a few prominent wild card champions, right, who won the Super Bowl. But most of the time, if you're in the wild card, it's a it's a tough road to hoe. The problem with the NFL, I think, to to your case, Jake, uh, Jake, that's my son's name, Ian. <laughs> he just appeared out of the corner of my eye. Uh, the problem is the well, NFL you- is parody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, even playing a, another wild card team in the NFL, that's that's a good football team. Um, and or it's a football team evenly matched to you, right? And so, uh, basically, in the NFL, it's just understood that if you have to play more games, even against equal or inferior teams, you're going to lose one of them, or you're going to get injured or whatever, right? So I don't know how to weigh that. I don't know the percentages to assign to yeah. the 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 power of the extra game or or the downside of the extra game. There's one other tricky thing to weigh too, which is that like, let's say you're the four seed. Yep. And you're Gundy, right? Gundy gets Oklahoma State to the four seed. He's ecstatic. Um, you're you get your full allotment plus the extra week to prepare for your opponent, and then let's say you're facing either the winner of Notre Dame versus UTSA. So you're only going to prep Notre Dame, right? Yeah. That's you're the getting, bet you're going to make. You're getting a month to prepare for that game. So how do you how do you quantify that? You know. So that's that's a factor, but I think you'd also probably agree that if Notre Dame next year is as good as we think they could be, all right, and they exceed all expectations, there's a physical reality that no matter your amount of game planning, it may not matter, right? Now, that game would be played at a neutral as well, correct? Yes. So which team is going to have the more likely advantage, the Big 12 champion or this fifth seed at large, which might be the third ranked or fourth ranked team in the country? Right. Here's the other factor. You're making my case, but... uh... Yeah, I am. No, I mean, like I said, I'm not persuaded either way. I think you you have a good case. Uh, Those are the two things. We've, We've each identified two things that are like potential cautions. So here's another dynamic though, which is like, um, if you're like, well, the five seed is, uh, the five seed versus the four seed, which is really better. I mean, the fact that it's an argument is not good for the structure of the playoffs. Yeah. Which I think is our main point. But if, even if you're like, well, the four versus five, the four might actually be better because the buy is so valuable. Here's the problem though, is that the team that gets the five seed is almost never going to be a team that would otherwise have been in contention for the four. Correct. It's going to be either Notre Dame or a really good Big Ten or SEC team that wasn't the champion. So let's talk about that and make it Texas relevant. If we sure. think Texas, let's let's make the optimist case for Texas. Let's make the, the, the ceiling case for Texas in 2024. I think a lot of people, or at least here, I can't speak for everyone, but I'll speak for myself. I think Georgia is the clear best team in the country in 2024. So far, we haven't had spring and the, that next portal round shakeout yet. Who knows what will happen? And then I think a tier below that is like Texas, Oregon. Um, Dylan Gabriel? 
yeah, I think actually Dylan Gabriel is a very valuable college quarterback, just in the same way that Bo Nix was. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying they're going to win it. I'm saying that they're going to they have a very good chance to win the Big Ten. Okay. So we'll we'll talk about that. They also have a pretty favorable schedule. Okay. But whatever point there is, let's we're making the optimist case for Texas. Uh-huh. That means Texas will either win the SEC and be the one seed, maybe the two seed if Ohio State's amazing, right? That's the worst case. Uh-huh. Either way, that's a great that's a great situation to be in, right? The two or the one, you're on the other side of the bracket from the other, right? And you get the buy, et cetera, et cetera. And you get to, you know, all the good things that we know. Here's the, the, here's the worst case of the ceiling perspective for Texas. Texas loses the SEC title game or uh, doesn't make it, but is, you know, for whatever reason is clearly like the number three or four team in the country. They're the five seed. So it would kind of be in your scenario or that scenario, and given what you've said about the five seed, and I think I buy into a lot of that, it's kind of heads I win, tails you lose if Texas is as good as we think they are in 2024, uh, or as good as we hope they are. We, I don't know how good they, you think they are. Uh, so that's the interesting thing about this that makes this, this isn't just Ian and I speculating interest, you know, oh, how interesting. This is very relevant to Texas if Texas is really good. Texas is going to be the one seed or the five seed, and both are really favorable. The, here, the um, if they slip to the six seed, yep, it could still maybe be very good, or it could be like a precipitous drop from five to six. Mm. Because, like, let's say uh, uh, Clemson puts it back together next year. And they're like back on their game or Florida state, whatever. One of the ACC teams is like a legitimate national contender. Mm-hmm. If you're the six seed, great. You have to play a real team. That's an 11 seed. And then you have to play that team. Whereas the five seed is they're going to run out of good conference champions before they get to the four seed. Right? Yes. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, In some years, the 10 and 11 seed is kind of a shrug. And in some years, the 10 or 11 seed is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it might be... uh, uh, I mean, we talked about this a little bit a few days ago, but like uh, it could be like some late-charging SEC squad that got healthy. Yes. And is like clicking at the right... And is like legitimately the best team in the country. Your 11 seed could be Alabama. It could, it could be bad. It could be like that Sam Darnold USC. That yeah. And, 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 you know, you know, the guys got to know how it works. Like it's the quarterback missed three games in the middle of the year. They lost two of them. The guy comes back healthy. They discovered some new stuff while the quarterback was injured. Right. Yeah. And now they're on a tear, and all of a sudden, you're the five. You're you're you're, you're the I should say the eleven seed. You're the six seed, and you're like, oh man. I mean, now the good news is that six seed would now is that game played at a neutral, or are you hosting that game? Six, uh, five, six, seven, eight play the first round at home. 
Okay. So yeah. that is that is a big advantage. Yes. Because there are certain schools. So let's take Oklahoma State in this instance, Ian. Oklahoma State hosting a playoff game, that's a legitimate environment. Yeah. If you have to play, if you play Oklahoma State in a neutral in like the second round, and you're a major traditional power, three quarters of the stadium is going to be your your school. Yeah. So that's a really interesting part of this too, right? It's kind of like Utah will kind of have a say with this in the Big 12, right? Where you think of like a place that's kind of a legitimate snake pit to go play. But then you, on the road, they sort of lose their powers or to, on a neutral, they sort of lose their powers. The, the way that's going to work though, if, like, if you're a really good Big 12 team that could potentially be seeded in the playoff no matter what, you're really going to want to be the conference champion because your odds at getting the five to eight seed, I'd say are actually not that good. No, like, you're feel like, be, because and you're, you're and, then you're, and then you're cooked. Yeah. And, and here's why it's going to be Michigan, Georgia, you know, Texas. I mean, whoever, right. Yeah. So that's the thing now too, is college football like college basketball with the old RPI. Now they use net uh, and college football briefly dabbling with the BCS formula, right? We are going to have to go to a mechanistic formula. And I know the guy who's going to be probably devising a big part of it. You know him too. Uh, he now works for ESPN, which is going to be driving a lot of this. And that's Bill Connolly, right? I, they are- I, I doubt but- it. I, I, that would be nice if, if he was. They have their well, own. They have their own stupid model that they promote instead of his. That, that like well, their team doesn't make sense. Their model's really dumb, and I mean, they use like raw yardage. They like. I mean, it's, it's real. Like I was using advanced statistics back in two thousand five, right? And the committee is still looking at. You know, they're probably on a on an overhead projector, and <laughs> not a computer screen, right? But they're using stuff of like. How many rushing yards do you average difference from you and your opponent? And it's like, well, why do you care how they got their yardage? Like, first of all, like, and then secondly, if you don't adjust for how your opponents got their yardage against their opponents, it's, what does it mean? (laughs) You know, Air Force should be in the playoff, right? I mean, because they have a, a big rushing yardage gap against their opponents. Uh, because they, you know, they ran for 493 yards against Colorado State. So, yeah, it's 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 silly. It would be good to get a guy like Connolly in the room. The interesting thing about Bill, and I, I don't want to characterize him unfairly, but he's a big tent guy. So, yes. what's interesting is, in addition to he knows statistically from an advanced perspective how these smaller schools would fare, right? He still would. He would actually sign off on a playoff where every conference champion gets a seed, and you you play it out. Yeah, and you have a bunch of at-large SEC and Big Ten teams sitting out. ESPN ain't signing up for that. I mean, Bill Bill's not in charge of any of that decision making, but it does also give you an idea of his perspective, which is like Big Ten, everyone gets to play. Yeah, too bad Louisiana Monroe will lose by forty-eight in the first round, but hey, you know it's it's a real playoff. That's how the, you know, and then he'll point to the NCAA basketball tournament. You know, when, when, uh, 
fairly Dickinson. Well, that's a bad example. Fairly Dickinson upset Purdue, but when when the t- traditional Fairly Dickinsons of the world are the 16 seed, they lose by 30, right in the in the first game. But you know, every now and then you do get the interesting upsets and all that. So anyway, I do think that they are going to have to devise a mechanistic formula for all of this because the committee. I mean, as I've said many times, if you scan their resumes, we're we're not sending our best, Ian. Do you think maybe they would just use uh, Vegas spread? It or would be the it, so more, the truth is honestly, in the truth is Vegas handicappers would do the best job of any of this. Yeah, but they can't have that association with the sport. Uh, they, no, I mean things are changing. Not they could, not directly. They they could just backdoor it. I mean, if they just did SP plus, Bill Connolly's SP plus, SP plus actually at this point is very close to a Vegas handicap. It is late. You'll lose a lot of money betting SP plus early in the year. Yeah, but by this time of the year, you know. Yeah, it'll be at the end I, of the year. I would say his SP plus doesn't adjust fully till late. The other thing is, I don't know if you recall the old BCS formula. Uh, they made. Like, first of all, margin of victory is one of the better indicators of quality. Now, we, you and I know all the, the downsides and the fallacies of margins of victory. Bottom line, beating a team by 35 is markedly different from beating a team by three. Agreed? Yeah. And over enough games, that should prove something about the quality of your team. If you're blowing out like good teams in particular. Um, I think you throw out sort of, ooh, well, they beat you and they, uh, they beat out Nevada. They beat Nevada eighty-four to nothing, and this team only beat them forty-nine to seven. It's like that's meaningless, right? But what is meaningful is, hey, this team played Alabama and beat them by three touchdowns, <laughs> you know, and that that means something. Um, so. If you'll remember, because it's college, they didn't want to encourage running up the score or whatever it is, the BCS disallowed margin of victory uh, as one of their standards, or at least a gross margin of victory. So I'm interested to see, you, you mentioned the, the gambling stuff. To me, the clearest and most obvious people who can do this the best is Vegas, because they have, they have skin in the game. And, and they actually know what they're doing. They really do. They're, as a guy who gambles, they're really good at what they do. And whatever advantages I have are simply because I'm so engaged with a conference that early in the year, I'm able to make a bunch of money off Big 12 teams. Do you ever find, I, I have found, I don't actually, I don't gamble, but uh, I, I look at the point spreads all the time because it's the perfect way to evaluate these things, right? Yes. Do you ever find if I see a point spread where I'm like, if I'm like texting a friend that I knows gambles and likes to look for, if ever if, if ever I see a point spread that I'm like, no way, no freaking way. What I've learned is I'm missing something. It's a trap. <laughs> whenever I would pick, whenever I whenever I used to have like a column with football outsiders where I had to pick against the spread every week, I would like input SP Plus's pick. And then I would put my pick and see if I could beat out Bill's uh, deal. And uh, when I picked against, when I would see the point spread and I was like, that point spread feels about right. And I would pick those games. I actually got really good at it eventually. Yeah. 
whenever I've tried to pick on the games where I thought the spread was ridiculous and I was going to capitalize, oh boy, I, I must have batted like 2,200 on those or something terrible. Yeah, the, the thing about Vegas, and we're, we're talking about Vegas globally. I mean, Vegas is actually several things when you talk about Vegas, right? It's the market, right? And the market is just a bunch of opinions. It's like an economy, right? Um, it's human psychology writ large. But Vegas, when I'm referring to it, is like the odds makers, the handicappers. And contrary to popular opinion, I think most people think Vegas just sets odds and spreads to make the money half and half on each side. That's often true, but Vegas odds makers will take positions and they will take large positions against the public. And I don't think most people know that. Didn't they, Evan, didn't they lose a bunch of money on Patrick Mahomes' last recent run? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened to them there. But I, I know what happened when um, Baylor had just like smoked Oklahoma State with Charlie Brewer and landed all these shots down the field. And they were playing amazing defense under Matt Rule. And they drew, were drawing like a pretty mid, as you would like to say, TCU team. And this, the line was like Baylor – minus one or TCU minus two. And I was like, this is insane. And I turn the game on and I see Charlie Brewer just throw a complete duck a couple times. And I was like, oh, oh, because <laughs> they obviously they had the injury news. They knew that they he do throw 15 yards down the field. So a little secret about Vegas part two, just like inside Texas has yeah. its it's little uh, birds that that sing to us about the program. Uh, Vegas does too. And all you need is a student trainer. All you need... And by the way, nothing unseemly is necessarily happening here. It could just be you've, you've made contact with a person and they're deliberately flattered that you're interested in like their take. Uh, sometimes you're flipping them 50 bucks. <laughs> you know I mean, but... Uh, People they have better information than you would imagine, uh, often better than than even people that follow the team religiously. So uh, it's interesting stuff. Hey, one thing that is not gambling and should not be gambling is your financial life. And if you want a guy that you're gonna help yourself with the odds in this uh, crazy world of markets, whether they be financial or gambling, uh, unfortunately, David McClellan cannot help you with the gambling stuff. He will help you with the other stuff. Uh, David is a former Texas swimmer, a partner at Forum Financial Management, a fiduciary registered investment advisor. Not your typical advisor because he spent most of his career not working trying to get clients for his personal uh, advising career, but he spent most of his career in executive roles with Morningstar and Pershing, pretty prominent financial firms that you guys may have heard of. Uh, if you're managing your own money, chances are you're suboptimal because you don't have the time or the knowledge or you don't know what you don't know. And David can help you optimize your finances in a meaningful way that helps you build more wealth over time. Uh, he's a guy who's been featured in multiple major money magazines uh, for his expertise. He's a guy who's written white papers that other financial advisors are citing to their clients. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'd rather the guy go with the guy who's writing the stuff and creating the stuff that other financial advisors use uh, than the guys who are copycatting. So anyway, I would encourage all of you, 
if you're in the process of building wealth or you've got some wealth and you're interested in, in having someone expert manage it, call David McClellan. Great dude. Really, really sharp guy. 312-933-8823. He's got clients all over the country. And uh, whether you meet with them in person or over a Zoom session, he is equally efficacious. So, Mr. Boyd, sir, is there anything that's popped up in our last little chat or anything you want to ask about or expand upon or, or muse about? Uh, well, eventually we'll talk about this book we both just read. That's what yep. <laughs> um, we'll have. A, we're going to have a book club episode coming up. Ian and I are starting an Oprah style book club, but there's still time if any of you want to participate. Uh, it's what's the yeah, name of this yeah. book? Uh, we were it's just better to be feared by Wickersham. What's his name? Seth Wickersham. Seth Wickersham. It's about the New England Patriots. Um, Ian and I, as football nerds, are obviously interested in the Patriots, as you should be if you're interested in, you know, frankly, it's an entire league dedicated to parody in every way. They're trying to make you not great or sustainably great right? By the rules, by the draft, by salary cap. And Bill Belichick built a system with his, with his number two, Tom Brady, for 20 years that dominated the NFL. And this book tries and in some ways is very effective in explaining why, kind of misses some other things. Uh, but Ian and I are going to talk about it and expand on it because I think it's a great window into understanding winning organizations, optimization, and unlike college football, the margins of the NFL are much, much tighter. And you know, you see that you know, the best teams in the league, and you see the Jacksonville Jaguars or somewhere, and you're like, oh, they suck, right? Uh, Jaguars are probably a bad example since they went pretty deep in the playoffs last year. But um, the, the, the difference between the number one team and the number 32 team is much slimmer than people think. And a lot of it's yeah. just leadership, having a quarterback, <laughs> you know, and the quarterback, his leadership. Um, you know, you always hear people muse like, well, I'd like this Alabama team. You'll hear an idiot color guy. This Alabama team's amazing. I'd like to see them play in the NFL. I think they could go eight and eight, you know. And it's like they would get thumped by the worst team in the league. I hate, I hate to break it to you, but um, yeah, it's an interesting book. If you guys want to read it, then you'll the podcast will make more sense. But the podcast will make sense even if you don't read it because we'll we'll do a dedicated podcast just talking about it because the themes in it are much larger than the Patriots and Belichick and Brady. Uh, although understanding who they are and what their journey is really interesting, uh, particularly Tom Brady's journey from California to Michigan and uh, getting benched for Drew Henson and all sorts of crazy stuff. So. It'd be fun. It was uh, it was fun to read as a uh, as a local to Michigan. It was fun to read about his experience here. Yeah, because uh, I mean they try to celebrate him here, but he's just not a big part of Michigan lore. And uh, I I wasn't totally sure why. I knew he'd split some time with Drew Henson, but uh, it's very plain when you read the book why he's not a big part of Michigan lore, which is that they just did not know what they had. And he wasn't exactly what he is now. No. <laughs> One of the coolest things about the book, and again, I don't want to 
bury the lead here is too many fans and too many media have a perception of a static player. The player is what they are at age 20 and they, and they can't be different at age 24 or 25 or 28 and time. And again, in multiple sports, but especially the NFL at certain positions that just yeah. proves not to be true and that players can grow. They can get good. They can get better. Shockingly. Right. It was a great segue. It's something I've been writing about this week is that Tom Brady, he really came into his own at Michigan, I think in his fourth or fifth year. Yeah. Well, guess what, Paul? Texas is going to have a fourth year quarterback next year. Uh, let me stop you. Arch Manning is, is going to be a second year quarterback. We can't make those kinds of mistakes on everyone gets a trophy again. Well, no. are, are you seriously, you think Quinn's going to start over Arch Manning? You fool. I mean, that's, I'm just going off what Cirque says. I mean, oh, okay. Okay. I will. I'll just concede that, you know, wink, wink, Quinn. Sake of argument. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know what Quinn will look like in his fourth year. But he. You think he'll get fat and grow a mulligan? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. You never know with like these young guys. I mean, I, we were both young men once, me much more recently than you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the difference, I mean, ideally, like age 25, you know, your prefrontal cortex develops. It's fully developed. Yeah. Insurance rates go down. Your decision making improves considerably. Making becomes no longer like primate level. Um, but even before then, like it's just so common for these young guys, especially like you said, at the more mental positions to make enormous leaps when they just realize something clicks, either they realize how hard they need to work um or like the value of working hard or they realize like what they're not doing right and just develop a sudden sense of self-awareness that they've never had before yep i think we've all had we've all had moments like that but in, in when we were young i i remember um one time i was uh early, dating my now wife and early in our relationship uh, some of my buds were like complaining about their girlfriends or something and I was like, oh yeah, Catherine, she was like uh, critiquing me for, for this trait recently. Can you believe that? And one of them just started laughing in my face. <laughs> and then the other one started going, yes, yes, finally. And I realized that she had a, whatever it was that I thought was ridiculous that she was pointing out as a, as a character flaw in me was uh, very legitimately a character flaw that was driving everyone crazy. Oh, was she talking about where the thing where every time you get in your car, you burn out going out of the parking lot and yell out, yeehaw. No, that, that, thing? That, was, that was, that was like 10 years later before that. Oh, happened. okay. All right. I actually don't remember what it was. God, no. I mean, I had so many dumb, stupid flaws, but you know, the, that was a long way to make the point. I think Quinn Ewers could have a great offseason yeah. and really develop in some astounding ways. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> We're not. If he hits that right, you know, maturity track, 
it's just who knows, right? Well, here's the thing that's that's encouraging for the floor, maybe of this this team, or at least this offense. It's good. It, yeah. If he plateaus, he's pretty good. Yes. Yeah. If he continues to ascend, and by the way, if you if you have a little slide rule and you want to make a little X and Y axis chart freshman year <laughs> Quinn yours right draw a little dot there his 58% completion percentage his 7.4 yards per attempt his what two or three meltdowns that he had in different games right yeah. where he was effectively unplayable right and then chart the next plot point of last year no meltdowns 69% completion rate 8.8 yards per attempt, which is excellent. Take a little ruler and draw a line. Do you see a slope there or is it flat? Now, does that mean, I think all of you know, if you have any data analysis background, it's very uh, reckless to take that slope <laughs> and project it forward infinitely, right? doesn't work that way. Humans don't develop that way. But however, even if you take half of that increase, right, from freshman to sophomore, sophomore to junior, that's impressive. That That's a very, very good college quarterback. That's a guy who's going to be invited to the Heisman ceremony. Yeah, no question. So also, good stuff. With with Quinn, <clears throat> he's he's generally at his best in the biggest games. And even games where he, like, had sort of meltdowns, or like huge mistakes, even in his, even in his first year at Texas, he had a knack for kind of trying to gunsling his way back in. Yeah. Like that Oklahoma state game, he was like, he threw some of his best throws at the end of that game in Stillwater when he was otherwise getting wrecked. Yes. It's still made like an interception too, but he was, I don't know. He he's not a, he doesn't have any quit in him. He doesn't get petulant and self, you know, sort of. Oh, well, this I'm getting sacked, or well, no one's open. This is a bad play. How am I supposed to do this? With you know, he doesn't have any of that in him, which is a great trait in a quarterback. Uh, not to throw it back to our book, and I don't want to take us on a tangent. If you'll remember, Tom Brady had a period in high school and early college where he was a little bit of a bitch when like things didn't go his way. Right. And he became one of the most mentally tough pros that you could imagine. I mean, his attitude was, it's all on me. Even if I do everything right and someone in the offense screwed up, that's because I didn't coach that guy enough or I didn't involve or engage that guy enough or I didn't do something to spark him. So I think Quinn is developed. I think he has a natural bias to like, what can I do? to make this better. Even if I'm doing everything right and it's failing or I'm not getting blocking, he's not a point the finger guy. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Have you? No, I've seen the opposite. Cause I mean, I, I even asked, I, I asked him uh, to his face in media days last year, what, what the disconnect was in him, like failing to hit worthy deep all year. And he like, he just kind of thought for a second. He's like, I don't know. Uh, must've just been too excited, too much adrenaline or something. Like you could thought you could tell he was like thinking, is there a way to answer this that's like like not gonna hurt me or the team or worthy? Yeah. 
what no i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take the blame shrug it off and move on which is uh sometimes i think people it's hard to tell like how smart win is right (laughs) and i i do think he's actually a a thoughtful kind of uh internal processing person paul's not sure no no i'm just laughing at you bringing bringing that up i mean ian and i joke i mean i think we've said it occasionally but you know when when yeah, you know, there's simple Quinn and there's complex Quinn. You know, there's times when you see decision making, you're like, oh, simple Quinn is here today. Uh, but I think that's changed quite a bit. And I think there's a, there's a good likelihood that that continues to improve rather than... Also, here's the other factor in this, this little calculation. Steve Sarkeesian. Yeah. Steve Sarkeesian right. hates inexperienced quarterbacks. Why? They suck. They, lose they, they suck. Well, why? Why? Because they make <clears throat> dumb decisions that cost you games regularly because of they don't know where their protection is going to break down and win. They don't go to their check down on time because they're trying to play hero ball. They don't know their outs. They don't know their outs. They don't know. Hey, you really need to look to the alert on this play because their backup corner is in. Yeah. Just like a million little decisions that can be the difference between like 14 point swings, right? You you could have had the touchdown. Instead, you tried to run away from the fastest, nastiest player on the field and he took the ball away from you and scored. I'll give up an example that I saw firsthand 75 feet from my face in 2009, Texas, Alabama. Um, Texas had mounted its big comeback. They had Garrett Gilbert in. We're trying to do our last game-winning drive starting at our end zone. And Alabama did a very simple overload. Okay? We had a line-blocking call going the other way, meaning the edge is coming off the edge free. No one is blocking him. And also, by the way, our running back is running a route. Yeah. Garrett Gilbert, no blame on him. The dude's a true freshman, right? Playing in a national title game. Doesn't know that. He doesn't see it. Whereas Colt McCoy not only would have seen it, he would have exploited that, right? He would either change the protection or he would have used it against them. Because on that play, the danger of this overload was they didn't have enough guys to cover on the side that we were running routes and on that play, you'll see our running back and Jordan Shipley pop open instantly. Colt McCoy would hit him for 14 yards. Next play, right? Garrett Gilbert holds the ball. Eric Anders, the Bama edge, I remember him still, the outside linebacker, because he's from San Antonio. And he hits Garrett Gilbert, fumbles the ball. Bama jams it in for another score. Game's over, right? That's just an inexperienced quarterback. It doesn't matter what your talent level is. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Vince Young in that situation. Well, Vince Young would have spun out of Eric Anders' hands and <laughs> ran for 14 yards. But uh, the point is, name your quarterback. They wouldn't have gotten it. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when Arch Manning got in the game against Tech for a decent amount of time, they asked Sark about it, of course. And Sark said, hey, you know, he's, out, he's a lot of adrenaline. He's learning experience. He said uh, he didn't see his first read 
he didn't you know, because everyone was like, "Oh, Arch Manning's a good runner." Like, of course, we already knew that from watching his high school. But the reason he was a good runner is because he didn't know where to go with the ball. And Arch Manning is about as sophisticated a freshman as you'll find in college football, right? So that's why Sark hates inexperienced quarterbacks and all of his best success at every stop, Washington, USC, and hopefully now Texas, it's always been a seasoned, tenured quarterback. Uh, Matt Leinert's the greatest example, right? Yeah. He also, uh, I want I want to see them run more drop back this year, which is, which means the quarterback drops back. It's not play action. And he's going like one, two, three, scanning through options. Or hot if it's a blitz, or deep if it's, you know, there or whatever. Drop back passing is like the NFL game. Colt McCoy was a master. It's very hard to do right on the college level. But if yeah. you can do it, it's like indefensible, especially at the college level. So I'd like to see more of it. But uh Sark loves set piece offense. Yeah. But the older your quarterback is, the more set piece offense you can run. Because you just you've he's banked a million reps in a million different plays, and it's really easy for him. It's like I've already made this example on the podcast before, but it's like he's already learned Spanish, and now you can teach him Italian that much quicker or Portuguese that much quicker or whatever. Yep. Yeah, football has cognates, right? Words that sound that are similar have similar roots to others, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And football, there's plays and defenses you see that you're just like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, all right, they're they're going to stay in single high. Well, then I know this guy's open to every play. Yeah, and and now he's seen like Quinn has seen like Tampa two and some other things that a lot of college quarterbacks wouldn't see as much. The Texas got. Over yep. the last year, because they were uniquely challenged to deep offenses, defenses, and uh, yeah, so it's just like, okay, I know this coverage now. I know this brand of quarters that Oklahoma plays. I know its strengths. I know its weaknesses. You're going to teach me five new ways to attack it. I'm going to get them that much faster because I understand what the concepts are. Well, you you saw Quinn figure that out against Oklahoma in real time. Disastrous first quarter, phenomenal second, third, and fourth quarters. And, you know, as I wrote at the time, and not to open that can of worms, I really wish Steve Sarkeesian had continued throwing the ball with the quarterback who was 26 of his last 27 uh, in that game uh, because Texas would have won that and made the whole thing moot. But Bird Auburn were, came through with a pretty long field goal. You, are you, I don't know if you've got something else. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Not that decision, but that game. <sighs> I think it's a, a great example of why one Texas OU is such a unique rivalry because you legitimately, the better team can lose. Yeah. And people's like, oh, that's most rivalries. Not really. Not actually. Not if you study them. The, the, when Texas plays Texas A&M, the best team almost always wins. Texas OU, I've I've seen so many OU games where Texas was manifestly weaker <laughs> pre-Mac Brown, and they won the game. Uh, and I've seen, obviously, multiple OU games where they were equal to Texas or slightly worse. And they not only won, they blew out Texas. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of those. 
So, uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Well, I, I think that's like the must win game on the schedule next year. And I think Sark knows that, but boy, he better know it. Like, cause the, there's, there's traps. They have Ed Ann Arbor in week two. Yeah. Um, I think that they're going to want to use a lot of the summer prep for Michigan. All prep on Michigan. That's How though? Well, that's true. I mean, what's Michigan running? Well, I, I mean, mostly the same stuff because they they kept Sharon Moore just got promoted to head coach, and they hired uh, the guy who tutored their last two defensive coordinators. So it shouldn't the be the old Ravens defensive coordinator, Wink uh, uh, Martin Gale. Wink Martindale. One thing about him to know: this will be something we'll write about as we get closer to this game. The most blitz happy defensive coordinator in the NFL. Yeah, well, that might be an opportunity for us. <laughs> it, it could be if we prep it correctly. Uh, but so, with an experienced so, offensive line and experienced quarterback, you know, you kind of are like, you may, yeah, I may regret saying this, but you kind of say, you're going to blitz us a lot? Okay. Bring it on. They're also like, um, I've been writing about this on the Substack recently. They're they're big fans of the zone blitz. Yeah. And the way the NFL runs zone blitzes is not very common to college because it is difficult. Um, you end up doing having to do something like teaching Colin Simmons how to uh, follow a series of rules covering a seam. Yes. And it's like, if you're a college coach, it's like, why would I do that? Well, and they're also like, dude, I don't have time for this. The coach or the player or both? Both. But I mean, so I, I think the great scandal at Michigan was not the sign stealing. I think the great scandal that will come out is how much time Michigan actually requires their players to practice to, to attend optional film study, yeah. which because Harbaugh was I know for a fact from talking to a Harbaugh player at Stanford for several hours uh, that that was a, a feature of that program. Right. You had optional film study that was uh, conducted in a very non-optional way. So basically, if you wanted to start, you better be there. Yep. Even though, even with that, I, I looked back and to to note how often Michigan zone blitzed against uh, Washington. Yeah. They would have been the most dangerous to do that against, and they actually didn't even do it that much. They just relied. They just relied on their front four. Uh, where were we going with it? Oh yeah, here's the trap with Oklahoma is that they played Georgia the week after. Yep. And I just it seems like Sark gets like saucer-eyed for some of those big games against marquee teams. And uh it's like you cannot you cannot be one in three against Oklahoma. You cannot be one and two against Brent Venables. And this is potentially a not that great of an Oklahoma team that you're going to be facing. Yeah. Speaking of Vegas, I believe they set their over under win total. at seven and a half so far for Oklahoma. Yeah. I think I've seen, I think I've seen six and a half and seven and a half, six and a half. I think I saw that at one, but I think, well, if that's the case, I'm unfortunately, uh, sorry, you got listeners and, and I'm going to be betting the Oklahoma Sooners win total over on that. I think that was a very early, uh, there, okay. there also there's a, there's a point spread for the Red River shootout out. What is it? Oh, Texas minus ten and a half. 
Oh boy, that's that's tough. That's rich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they might, the yeah. half point on the ten is the the tough trigger, right? They might be awful. Yeah, well, I mean, they're I don't stupid. think they're going to be awful. Probably not because it's Oklahoma. I mean, what, when when are they awful? You know. Well, they they were awful um, two years ago. Two years ago. Sure. Last year they were. When you look back. I mean, I was not even that wrong about that team. They were not that good last year. No, but so you and I, I don't know if you, you, we did a prediction podcast. I remember. And I nailed their record. Um, yeah. And we, you, you were more bearish, but in Ian's defense, if you go back and look at OU's season record, they won multiple games that could have gone either way. And I don't mean, oh, you know, they were up 10 late and the team scored late and theoretically they could get an onside. I mean, like the game was decided by a point. <laughs> it was late and the other team had the ball on their 38, right? Uh, they had, I mean, in fact, it's very clear. This is another aspect of this rivalry. Look, I'm not trying to play the like, we're cooler to care Texas thing. Texas badly wants to beat OU. I badly want to beat OU. It is our greatest rival. I want to destroy them. OU cares about the game and puts credence in the game at a level that's greater than us. And the, I mean, I don't necessarily mean their fans, although I also think their fans do, but I think institutionally. I think it's very clear from that game. And then when you watch what o, OU did the next week against, I think, UCF, it was clear that they put a lot of wood behind that arrow against Texas. That was going to be their statement win. And by the way, not a bad bet by that staff, which was, hey, if we beat Texas, we're going to play in the Big 12 title game. Didn't work out that way for them. Yeah. But that's not a bad bet in any given year, is it, Ian? No. I mean, that's usually how it worked. They also, if you watch like the games before Texas, it was playing that um, Oklahoma was... Uh, Sneaking in extra prep. I'll tell you what, though, it is it is good for Texas, one of the more prideful and complacent universities and football powers in the world to have this less privileged rival yeah. within close proximity that just lives to cut us down and like bring us, drag us back into down to the dirt. That's yep. probably that's probably good for us. Got it. God love the Sooners for what they do, you know. It, it, it is if you take the right lessons, right? Yeah. Um, but were, were you on the recent video that we did where I was talking about like certain programs? If you just sort of look at their logistics or their placement or where they are, you yeah. can't quite understand why they're good. Yeah, that was, yeah. It's like force of will is, you know, what I mean. OU's good at football because they really care about football. And frankly, beyond the caring, they've made great decisions. We'll see if Brent Venables ultimately turns out to be a great decision. But um, Bob Stoops was a hell of a hire. My, my suspicion has been that Venables was not a great call. And what they were trying to do was desperately mean stability has been such a huge part of their program like an enormous percentage of their wins and championships and conference titles are like three guys, right? It's like uh, uh, Wilkinson, Switzer, Stoops. Yeah. And they're always, those guys, they're always trying to like hand off to their assistants. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I, Switzer, Switzer was an assistant, right, for like Fairbanks, but Switzer was like the driver of their success, and then he was made that. He was the key recruiter. Oh, okay. And yeah. just sort of like a force of nature kind of guy because of his personality and magnetism and all that. So I think uh, they really, I mean, Riley left him in the lurch. They didn't see it coming. No. And they're, we have to, we have to maintain stability. What's the best? So they're like, they go and they went to like Shane Beamer and they went to Brent Venables. Um, and uh, I think they were just hope they're just hoping that they didn't have to like go find another like uh, foundational guy. Yeah. Interesting side note on that. Um, Daryl Royal sort of retired Bud Wilkinson. You know, he kind of put him out of the game, like beat him constantly, younger, hungrier guy. And then Daryl Royal more or less kind of got put out of the game by Switzer. Yeah. Almost, um, almost directly, right? Sorry? Almost directly. Yeah. And also, frankly, it was um, Texas being late on integration and the black athlete, right? Uh, which, you know, DKR, I think, got mischaracterized on that. There, there were pressures larger than him. Um, he was always cool with it. It was, but Switzer was real cool with it. And that's what propelled OU as the cool option in Texas, particularly mm. in the black community, right? In the 70s, like all of OU's stars, <laughs> we're from we're from Texas, and yeah, they were uh, they were cool, you know. There and what's amazing, and to give you some idea about coaches and the coaching tradition and character, Daryl Royal taught, instructed his assistants to teach Barry Switzer the wishbone when they came to a coaching clinic, because that was what you did as a coach. You shared innovation. You shared knowledge. Even with a rival, it was an old gentleman's agreement of coaching. Can you imagine that happening now? No, no. <laughs> I kind of wish old Daryl hadn't done it. Yeah, I've heard stories about like um, somebody getting thrown out of a clinic for challenging one of the uh, Bryles guys. The Bryles guys was like doing some uh, clinic on their uh, their like deep option routes that are like basically the entire offense. And some guy was like calling him out, like, this is not what you guys do. This is not how you guys teach it. And got thrown out. Oh, wow. So they were basically teaching a false, a fake clinic. Yeah. Because they like, didn't want to reveal their true well, sauce. Well, I've never understood what it was that they had that they were guarding so closely. I think maybe the language of the offense is, was maybe super valuable to people because the way it was organized, like they didn't have a playbook and it was... I could see that being valuable, but when people were like, oh, you know, just the way Baylor runs that, I'd be like, what is so special? They spread everyone way out. You get one-on-one -on -one matchups, and then the guy just runs wherever the defender isn't. Hey, like yeah. You can watch it on all 22, and it's like not – it's very simple what they're doing. Like, why is this so – I, I think this part of it – so I think actually the answer to that has to do with coaching and leadership and how it's taught. And how it's implemented. So if you watch the old Bryles systems guys in a practice, first of all, the, the practice is done at a frenetic pace. You're just yeah. trying to get reps in. Also, their coaches, their assistant coaches are instructed not to make corrections during practice. 
It's like Oregon. So, it's like Chip Kelly did that too. So that's very important because anyone who's played high school football at any level, there was that one assistant who would stop the entire practice to coach one guy on something for seven minutes. And you're all standing, or I mean, literally standing with your hands on your hips, just watching the guy's like, you're doing this. You need to be doing this. And your head coach would, you know, or the head coach would be doing it. And, you know, I remember even at that age, sort of just young and dumb being like, this does not seem like an effective use of our practice time. But the Bryles guys, you, you ask, well, how do you fix things? You fix things in film. So they film all the practices and then you're, you go in and then they, they tear into you in yeah. those, saying you're doing this wrong. You're screwing this up. If I see that on the next practice, like you're not playing. Uh, but the point was rep, rep, rep. The rep is everything. And so the idea was to get these guys who ranged from high football IQ to almost like you're shocked they were able to get their pads on themselves, right? And the idea is that they would go into a football game and know exactly what they're doing with confidence, but also maintaining that optionality of what you said of running where they ain't, you know, you and the quarterback are on the same page because you're seeing it the same way because you did so many reps. Yeah. I just don't know why that wasn't like, like replicable or like why, why they thought that they could like guard it from being replicable. I think to this day, those dudes still have like little secrets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whatever. Is is Hypel part of that? Uh yes. Or is he a copycat and uh, not fully well, in the club? So he uh he was I think emulating it a little bit at Oklahoma before he got fired. Yeah. And um then he went and got Joe John Finley, who had been like a quality control coach with Baylor for one year with Bryles. Yep. And took Joe John Finley around with him a bunch of places. And then he worked with uh, uh, Jeff Levy, who has the goods, right? Yep. Son-in-law. And Oklahoma, this is why Oklahoma promoted Joe John Finley to co-offensive coordinator with Seth Luttrell for this year. is because Joe John Finley's been around and he's got the goods on the system. So well, what was your question? So yes, he's he's a he managed to... Uh, steal the steal the secrets and he, he infiltrated the Bryles. yeah little sleeper cell all right well i'll Maybe. tell you a guy who's got the goods we're talking about simplicity what's so hard about getting a good mortgage right you just go online and get a mortgage rate and bam you got a mortgage yeah you're good to go eh, let me suggest to you it's not so easy and let me suggest that not all of you have the most straightforward financial situation uh, let me suggest to you that the, the help and the customization that you get online. Uh, the great military theoretician Clausewitz once said, in war, everything is simple, but all the simple things become very hard because of the frictions of war. And uh, it's kind of like that when you buy a house. You need the best possible mortgage guy on your side. And that's Gabe Winslow. He has been a sponsor of this podcast proudly from the very beginning. You can reach him at 832-557-1095. Gabe lives in Houston, but he does mortgages all throughout the great state of Texas and several states beyond. So if you're not in Texas, still give Gabe a call. Either he can help you directly or he could just help you find a good mortgage guy. Uh, just because he's a cool dude, he'll help you. 
just give him a call. Like literally he'll just help you out because you're a fellow Longhorn and uh, he's a good dude. Uh, and I know several EGAT listeners that uh, Gabe received no compensation at all. And Gabe basically acted as a de facto consultant. And believe me, when you're a really sharp mortgage guy, uh, there's nothing more amusing than seeing him uh, kind of tell you what to say to your mortgage guy that you're using uh, and, and seeing that guy's head spin. So uh, give Gabe a call. He's really good at what he does. Uh, just a great guy, like very, very sharp, really knows stuff. And some of the things that I've talked to him about, the deals that I've seen him structure are just absolutely amazing. Uh, he's gotten problem loan after problem loan sorted out like in 24 hours where multiple mortgage people said, I can't help you. That's impossible. Blah, blah, blah. Gabe always figures it out. Really sharp guy, former National Merit Scholar, has a law degree. Uh, and now he's a mortgage guy and he's uh, a guy who wants to help out fellow Longhorns and uh, anyone who's buying a house. So reach him at 832-557-1095. And if you're looking for a house in the Austin area, look no further than, is it further or farther? Look no further, correct? Uh, it's, I always remember it from that line from uh, Finding Forrester where he corrects his teacher. Yeah. It's like uh Farther relates to distance. Further is so farther. Look no farther, right? Look, is that right? Because you're that sounds, looking. That sounds wrong, though. That look, look no further sounds correct, but maybe it's wrong. Further is in the abstract sense, I think. Okay, so look no further than Laura Baker. She is your crack real estate uh, agent in the Sentex area. She's. Uh, award-winning agent for Keller Williams. You can reach her at 512-784-0505. She does all the Sentex region. So I don't know whether you're buying a house down from Waco to Gonzales, down to our friend Randy Boone down in Yoakum. Uh, she can help you out. Uh, she's really good at what she does. And guys, whether it's a mortgage guy or your realtor, the most important financial decision you're ever going to make in your life is buying a house. Okay. Getting Debbie down the street who sells a house every three years or going with your sister-in-law's friend because you're going to hurt someone's feelings. This is about your financial life. <laughs> this is about working with pros and not amateurs who dabble. Uh, go with someone who transacts constantly and is sophisticated. That's Laura Baker, 512-784-0505. I have had so many discussions with EGAT listeners or with folks in the real estate game who so many things have gone wrong when they use a rookie agent or an infrequent agent. Just go with the best and understand the importance of that. This is not a time to be doing like Oh, I don't want to offend Peg down the street if we don't use her. Peg down the street's not very good at what she does. So go with the people that are good at what they do. And it makes things a lot more seamless, whether that's Gabe or Laura. Again, you can reach Laura at 512-784-0505. All right, Ian. Um, what do we want to close with? Is there anything that's been on your mind? I mean, you're kind of uh, tut-tutting my idea that Oregon might be on that second tier of, of playoff contenders. Who, do you, who are you kind of identifying, understanding that this is way early, <laughs> you know, entire teams could change after the spring portal, uh, but who do you have identified beyond, say, Georgia and Texas as contenders? Well, let me just explain with Oregon. Watching Dylan Gabriel in the cold a couple times last year. Ah. And then realizing he's going to be playing in Eugene, which is not like the coldest, but not warm either. 
And then they have road games. I can't remember where their road games are, but I, I feel like they have like a, a trip to Madison or something in there somewhere, some other games. I, I just, I don't like that fit at all. Um, I feel like he sets a very high floor for them combined with Dan Lanning and their defense and the some of the infrastructure left behind by Mario Cristobal actually in recruiting. But uh, I just don't, I hate the ceiling with the team. All right. So late to Ian's point, they're going in November to at Michigan and at Wisconsin. Yeah. Otherwise they get Ohio state at in Eugene in October. No problems there. They're going to Hawaii. I don't think weather will be a problem there. Oh, nice. uh, and then they've got a lot of names. Like you kind of look at their schedule and you're like, Oh, this is like the name looks familiar or looks like it should be good. You see Oregon State, UCLA, Washington, and then you realize that these are probably three teams that would be lucky to make a bowl. Well, Washington, Steve Belichick. Oh, Steve Belichick. Is he gonna get it done? Is he the guy? Is he the kid with the mullet? Uh, is he the is he the one in the tongue? What's that? The tongue. What's that? Well, I don't have a very long tongue, but he would be the guy that'd be on the sideline with his tongue out, like Oh, that's right. That's, he no does the weird thing. That except Paul, thank God. Yeah, that's not good. Um, all right. So well, I, I, I like. Uh, I mean, Notre Dame. Maybe I think uh, Riley Leonard is that his name? Yes. I, that kid, and they and they took the coach uh, Denbrock, whose last yep. two pupils were uh, Desmond Ritter and Jaden Daniels. So I, I really like that fit. And they're going to design a very run friendly, wide open offense for him. That I think yeah. he'll be good. Yes, I like Notre Dame uh, as well. Yeah, I mean they got to be like at least nine wins, ten wins, right? Um, Ohio State probably will be very good. Although that whole Chip Kelly thing is fraught with uh, potential issues, right? Maybe you know Chip just sort of wants to coach ball. <laughs> He yeah, doesn't want to interact with alums. He doesn't want to recruit. Yeah. He's a good offensive Ryan, mind. What does Ryan Day want, though? Apparently, he wants he Chip Kelly because he's got a mobile quarterback. I, I mean, we'll see how that goes. Is he going to be cool with uh, Chip Kelly, like transforming their practices into these like Ryle style super rep deals where they're running like outside zone option instead of. Uh, Option routes for his uh, NFL receivers. Is he going to be cool with all that? I don't know. Um, I, knew, I do know that Chip Kelly, I mean, he likes to run the ball, which Ryan Day is trying to get more emphasis on, right? Yeah. But I think they're going to try to meld their systems, and ultimately Ryan Day is the guy, so Chip will do what Ryan tells him to. Will he, though? <laughs> will he? I mean, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> if he wants to maintain coaching major football. I mean, right. I mean, it could go great. It might be amazing, but I, I, you know, you know, I've seen these kinds of things not work out before. True. Nope. I, I just, I, so I think the, the main thing that I'm looking at is actually Ohio state's floor is their defense, which I think improved considerably. So yeah, I, I kind of see them as being potentially really good. So we'll see. They sure yeah. did the job with NIL. Yeah. I think they hired a secondary coach too that will blend even better with Jim Knowles. 
Um, I can't I can't remember the specifics though, so maybe that's wrong. Well, uh, the, yeah, I think too with Knowles, Ian, he's going to run his system, and then you're going to have a, it's going to be a little rocky early until he gets his guys, and then you see typically those Knowles defenses start to do what Ohio State did last year. So it'll be a year better now. So yeah, yeah. Um, is there another team that stands? I mean, you said Georgia was, you thought the best. Potentially. I think Georgia is the best team in 2024. Do you have anybody else on your radar as potential? Playoff People teams? that could jump like ascenders. Yeah. Ole Miss is getting a lot of hype, but I need to see them be able to physically hang with the Alabamas and Texases, right? Walter Nolan has to pay out real good. Oh, they got a bunch of dudes who, have a lot of potential and haven't really played great football, but you, how much is that on Texas A&M or, or whatever? So um, who could also jump up and kind of be a surprise? It's hard. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the point of them being of teams being a surprise is it's not easily predictable. LSU makes a lot of sense, but boy, that defense was bad. I, I know they're going to improve, but boy, they, they need a complete rehaul. Yeah, they uh huh. I I think they'll be good. I don't know what it'll be like. They have a Garrett Nussmeyer now, a quarterback yeah. that I thought maybe would take over for Daniels before last season. I was like, if Daniels gets hurt, I bet he gets Wally pipped, right? And then and then Daniels had just, you know, a historic Again, players aren't static. Yeah. Right? When, when Jaden Daniels left Arizona State. The word at Arizona State was good riddance. <laughs> like he's uncoachable, he makes dumb errors, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, dude wins the Heisman. I mean, obviously, let's in we can end on this if you if you're fine with it. The team that maybe has the most potential to do something like that is Texas. So yeah. Yeah, I like the way things stack up. We need some people, and I've been trying to write about this on Inside Texas. If you guys aren't members, you should you should definitely join. That's where the best conversation about Texas football is happening. Uh, but I've been trying to write about it and talking about in different ways. Texas is going to have a bunch of dudes go to the NFL. And typically, that doesn't work out great for Big 12 teams. So is Texas a Big 12 team going uh -huh. to the SEC? Yeah. Or are we already an SCC team and we're just going to reload and have a, a good but different version of two, you know, of a football team? We don't know. We don't know the answer. And that's why they play the games. Uh, but I do know this. All these dudes who are going to the NFL and they're going in the first two days of the draft, very few of them were projected to be going in the first two days of the draft at this time last year. So we need multiple guys that you're not necessarily you're going to be a little surprised by like how much they raise their game. We need that to happen again in 2024. And we're not just talking about Quinn Ewers. We're talking about a Jeray Bledsoe. We're talking about a, you know, Kelvin Banks, I think is a known factor. We're talking about one of the guards, you know, DJ Campbell, just mauling people, right? Nato Omazulu, basically just forcing his way into the starting lineup somewhere. I mean, we need that to happen at multiple positions if Texas is going to really 
be a high level playoff team and, and be either that one or that five seed that we talked about. Yep. So on uh, that, Ian, any closing thoughts? I'll give it to you, sir. And I'm not going to cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was going to say before I was cut off by LC, no, it's not worth trying to say. Um, yeah. All those guys you mentioned, there's so many guys they have that could be, fit that mold. So this is going to be a fun off season, not just because, I mean, you get good doses of Kool-Aid every off season, I think. Chris know? Brout. Yeah. And, but it, it's so much more fun when uh, you know that some of it's actually going to legitimately manifest like last year, like last year I was like, could Devondre sweat? Could he be a dominant force in the middle? Maybe. I mean, we'll see if he wants it and what, and then he does it, you know, Byron Murphy, he's going to be really good. Quinn Ewers is better. He's taking things more seriously. Um, you expect to hear that, but yeah, I, I think this might be a fun off season. I think you're right. And on that note, for Ian Boyd, I am Paul Wildington. Saying hook'em.